yeah, we treat art and making art as a luxury when in fact everything in our culture is driven by story. The stories we tell about who we are shape our choices and our actions and our reality. You're listening to Wild Creative, a podcast designed to inspire creative thought, enhance your artistic process, and excavate enriched understandings about art, culture, and yourself. I'm your host, Emma Kivetna, a creativity coach, artist, entrepreneur, and Sagittarius. I am joining you today from the traditional territories of the Mi'kmaq people in Nova Scotia, Canada. Without further ado, let's explore the wild creative. Hello, thank you for tuning in today to Wild Creative. I'm really excited about this episode because I got to talk to a fellow creativity coach, one who specializes in sci-fi and fantasy writing. Beth Barani is an award-winning novelist, master neurolinguistic programming practitioner, podcaster, and certified creativity coach for writers. She specializes in helping writers experience clarity so they can write, revise, and proudly publish their novels to the delight of their readers. Her courses are packed with useful hands-on information that you can implement right away. Her transformational consulting sessions help you step into the author life that you want with ease and joy. She runs an online school for fiction writers, including a 12-month group coaching program to help them develop an editing practice and get published. When she's not helping writers, Beth writes magical tales of romance, mystery, and adventures that empower women and girls to be the heroes of their own lives. For fun, Beth loves walking her hilly neighborhood, puttering in her garden, and watching YouTube videos about the space industry. Beth lives with her husband, Ezra Barani, also a novelist, and of course, their cats. It was such a pleasure talking to Beth because she's such a wealth of knowledge and she's so insightful and she just always has something interesting to say about writing, creativity, or genre writing, or sci-fi, or what it means to be human. These are all topics that we covered in our discussion today. And it was just so fun to talk to a fellow writer who is also so passionate about her craft and her books and her readers and helping other writers get to where they want to be as well. We talked about many things, including human consciousness and how fairy tales and folklore have affected her fiction writing. We talked about how life experience influences our art. She also talked a little bit about how fiction writing brings her closer to what she wants in life, and she will always choose fiction writing. And one of the most interesting things that we talked about at the beginning of the episode was how she uses language in her coaching. This is where her neuro-linguistic practitioner skills come into play, and I thought that was really interesting. So I hope you find this conversation just as riveting as I did. Beth joined me on Zoom from her home in Oakland, California. Hello, Beth. Thank you so much for joining us today on Wild Creative. Thanks so much for having me, Emma. So glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to dive in. <laughs> um, I wanted to start off by asking you, what exactly is a master neurolinguist programming practitioner? And how did you end up as a creativity coach for writers? Yeah, those are great questions. And I'm going to actually, those are two very different things. So I'll start with creativity coaching since that came first in my life. And 
Creativity coaching is a certification you can get. It's like a subset, I suppose, of coaching. But my training was really creativity with some coaching. <laughs> uh, and I was really attracted to it when I first heard of it. And it really, to me, felt like a perfect umbrella to marry some of the interests I already had, which at the time I knew I enjoyed teaching and helping writers, but I also knew I didn't wanna be inside a school system or inside any kind of institution. I'm very, it's not that I'm anti-institution, it's more like I find them restrictive for the amount of freedom that I would like to have in my life. And even though I couldn't maybe articulated all of that to you at the time I first discovered creativity coaching, I immediately knew it was a fabulous umbrella for my work. And I immediately knew that um, this is something I could pursue and I didn't know how yet I would use it. So once I, first I was like a guinea pig to someone else in training just to see if I liked it. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. Here's somebody who was asking me interesting questions about what I wanted as a creative. Oh, I could do that. I could totally do that for others. So I took the training and then realized it was a great umbrella or kind of like a shingle to hang up and tell the world, hey world, I'm a creativity coach for writers. And the training really um, was lovely around diving into creativity and different ways of looking at cre creativity from an artist perspective and also from a kind of a behavioral science perspective. And uh, that was fabulous. And then fast forward some years later, I realized I loved being a creativity coach for writers, again, still for this like wide openness of possibilities that allowed me to play inside of as a professional. I didn't quite have, I felt like I was missing something, kind of like the actual tools to help people have what they wanted. Mm -hmm. I knew that my questions were good. I knew that I inspired people and motivated people and people got things done by working with me, but I didn't really know the mechanics of what I was doing. So I got introduced to NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, through some business coaches who had done training. And so I was so inspired by their training that I needed to find out, well, where did they get their NLP training? So I went there, which was NLP Marin and that still exists. And so I got this, I think I did it over about a year and a half. And really it's weekend training and a lot of practicum and it's not theoretical. It's not a master's degree in an institution. It's very much practicing, learning, practicing, learning, practicing, and really in the end, learning how to help people have the change they want from a deeper perspective around how humans generally are wired and how we construct reality and how it's different for everybody. So even just learning how to explore someone else's model of the world and mental map of the world was so useful and so eye-opening to me. And when you really get on someone's map, you can really appreciate them and all they've created and then help them have what they want in a very gentle, respectful way. I just, I just love that model and that stance of helping people. Um, so that's kind of the background and what my training in NLP allows me to do. So what exactly like does is the neurolinguistic used for? How does it work like exactly? Gosh, well, that's a big question. <laughs> I could point you to the training yeah. and to the book. And in a nutshell. That. In a nutshell, yeah. Well, just for an example, say you want to write a novel and you come to me and you're like, oh, Beth, I want to write a novel, but I'm stuck. And then I start asking you questions. Oh, tell me more about being stuck and tell me more about where, what you want to create. And as they share with me, basically, I, I start noticing where they are, basically their present state. And I really 
get into appreciation about it. There's no judgment. There's just like, wow, this is where the person is and where they are today is way better. Like this is the best solution they can come up with today versus maybe where they were, you know, five years ago or before they even started writing. And then we look into the future. What is it they want to create? And we start to notice the difference between the two, both in the language. So it's very language focused. So neuro is mind and linguistic, you know, neuro-linguistic programming. So linguists, we're really, it's a real talking-based work. So I'm really focused in on the words people use and how they use them. So we're looking at tone and we're looking at, um, we're basically looking at how do they construct their current reality? We learned how to watch what's called eye access. Are they focused on the past or are they focused on the future? Is their body language oriented towards a lot of self-talk or a lot of feeling? Or are they listening to some kind of tape that's running them, maybe even unconsciously? So we just start to notice how they construct their current reality. Mm-hmm. And then we start to notice, we do inquiry around the future. What is it they want to create? And we help them create a goal that's entirely doable by them. Mm-hmm. So we're also helping them have agency and notice where are they resourceful? And where do they maybe need resources? So I'd say NLP is a lot about inquiring, where do you need resources? And sometimes in the training I receive is also about noticing how maybe I inquire, like, what's the earliest experience you had where you felt stuck like this? And I will use their language and I will basically really help them feel safe because I'm using their language and I'm using, I'm actually mirroring their body language and I'm mirroring their, their verbal language as well. And then we maybe inquire and we find out, okay, when they were five, their teacher yelled at them when they turned out, did a pretty painting and the teacher yelled because they got out of line, right? You know, they colored outside the lines. So then we do work basically on the earlier, the earliest version of themselves. We help them bring resources to that little one because we're all walking around with all our different ages inside of us running the show at any different given moments, right? Adults, we have tantrums and we often will feel and act like we were when we were right. two. That's because that part of us is like running the show and right those now. Those were the most like formative years is before the age of seven. Absolutely. And that's yeah. gonna stick with you subconsciously, whether you like it or not, <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> right, and, and we're also always open to revision our sense of self has already evolved. So NLP, we, in my training, we, we look at, it's not just the behaviors you do and your abilities and capabilities, it's actually who your sense of self and your sense of identity. And that is at our core. So some of the change work we do, will get to that core sense of self. And that core, um, maybe there's that feeling of, well, I can't color outside the lines, I'll get yelled at. And then deep down, they might have a belief that's running them that says, I'm only good if I follow the rules, or I'm only valid as a human being if I follow the rules. Mm -hmm. And you may not even know that that runs the show. And then when you start to connect to your deepest desire, which we've been exploring, is is to you know write finish that novel and then we we also find inside of you from an early age the desire to be free and the desire to self-express which is core to all humanity and then when we do some of the change work it's kind of like healing work and helping people have more resources to to the young one inside of you and then we gently do we create you know imagine a timeline from the time you were very little to now 
and we help all the versions of you throughout your your life up to now have that resource and then we can also bring it into the future it's actually naturally going to go into the future but we can also run the timeline into your future and have you step into it the brain is so amazing as soon as the brain imagines something it's you're there like wait so we we time travel all the time yeah that's <laughs> in so our cool. minds so that's like a kind of a general i mean i use yeah. some specifics but and it's highly specific this work it's not there are tools you can use that anyone can use but how to make it really specific to you it's really helpful to have a practitioner work with you through them or you can you know read books or watch videos and and learn these tools and um, bring them bring them into yourself yeah I, I love the like linguistic approach. When I was at university, one of the most interesting best classes I ever took was linguistic anthropology. And that was such a cool class. I loved all the assignments. It was so interesting. I got really good grades in it. It was just <laughs> like the best class ever. Um, and one of the things that has always stuck with me from that class is learning about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and how language builds your worldview, depending on what language you know. That's what you're, Absolutely. that's how you bring meaning to the world because of the words that you know. So I was like, oh, that's such a, it's just so, that's so true. It just, it just seemed like it makes such sense. And I just wish more people knew that, like how important language is. Yes. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's so cool that you approach creativity kind of like from linguistics that way. Absolutely. And I have to give you a few references that maybe we can put in the show notes. So yeah. one, my trainer is Carl Buchheit, and I'll give you that later, the spelling. His book is called Transformational NLP. And it reading that book is like getting sort of this NLP download. And he explains like the history of NLP and where it came from, evolved out of this work these guys did in the 70s in Santa Cruz in California. And then you know how what his influences were and he's brought in some other influences besides nlp mm -hmm. into the work um so i highly recommend that book and then the other book speaking of linguistics um is a great book maybe you've read called metaphors we live by by george lakoff and mark johnson I highly recommend this book you probably can read the whole thing and get everything the last quarter or third of the book is bringing in linguistic theory Mm -hmm. which I hadn't, I almost was an anthro major also at UC Berkeley and, but I did not take this class. I, it was a little too equation-y for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had learned, yeah, well, it's like, I'm more of a conceptual thinker. Right. And, yeah. And um, anyway, but I love this book because it really talks exactly about what you were talking about in terms of how metaphors shape our lens through which we see the world and the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. I think that's why storytelling is so foundational to humans because it's all lenses really. Yeah. So you have a podcast of your own called How to Write the Future. In the first episode of, of your podcast, you mentioned that you're interested in topics such as consciousness and what makes us human and things like AI. I also really love those topics because I have an anthropology degree, which as you know, means the study of humans and it's all about what it means to be human. And one of the areas I was really interested in in my degree was digital or cyber anthropology, where it's talking about the relationship between humans and digital technology. Just curious in your research and writing, like what sorts of conclusions, if any, have you come to about consciousness and what makes us human? and how does that show up in your fiction? That's such a big topic. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, am, I am so curious about this topic. I'm always wondering about it and 
um, reading about it and trying to understand what are scientists doing right now to answer this question. So it's interesting you talk about it as cyber human and some people call it transhuman, some people call it um, enhanced, I forget, but I call them in my story enhanced, enhancements. So my main character has an enhancement. She has an ocular implant and a brain computer interface and it's who she is and it's something she receives in the story, in the backstory as a teenager when she basically ruined her eye in an accident as she was trying to fix the home robot and it exploded in her face and she loses an eye and she gets this implant and she gets a very advanced one mm-hmm. and she has to like sign off and promise not to use it for bad <laughs> because it's so advanced so she uses it in in solving mysteries she's an investigator but in terms of consciousness in my in my work as a science fiction writer to me, I created a world in which technology supports humans. It's not conscious in a human way, but it's it's as if it were conscious. Like it's advanced enough. Just like we we there's an amazing predict typing predictability predict tools on our email and our word processing programs, right? Mm-hmm. Are they conscious? No, they're just programmed that way. So in my story, people have personal AIs, which you plug into the room or into a device or some rooms, it'll be like smart homes, but highly customized. Mm -hmm. They're not alive, but they're highly programmed and speak to you in a human voice and in um, a style that you could think they were alive. Like mimicking mimicking consciousness kind of, yeah. And they're smart enough, they've been programmed so that they can do things for you, just the way we have our tools do things for us now. Just like we can program an alarm clock or write computer programs that do very sophisticated things for us. So that's how I handled it. (laughs) Tools work for humans in my story land. When I'm writing fantasy, nature is conscious. There's a lot of consciousness and wisdom inside of nature that I have my main character really connect to and use and have a relationship with. And to me, in that world, everything is alive uh, as a given. And then it's about humans relating or not relating, noticing or not noticing, using or not using. And, it, and it's more couched in the world of magic and, and other things. So those are the two realms I'm playing with currently. And I don't know if I will ever write alien stories where humans encounter completely different consciousnesses. I love those kinds of stories when they're done well, but I don't know if that's what I'm going to write because that's not really... I'm not necessarily interested in that. What I am interested in is human evolution and how we can evolve, how our awarenesses can evolve. For example, Janie McAllister, my main main character in my science fiction series, mystery series, she has this ocular implant and she can see light waves that we beyond the regular uh, visible light spectrum. She can see infrared, she can see x-ray, you know, gamma rays, but it's all very controlled and there's there's a tons of controls i have to put in there because imagine how horrible actually your life would be if you could see all the light spectrum and some of it is currently dangerous to humans i i play with that i use it in all kinds of fun ways what if you know what if she could see radio waves what would that mean i mean (laughs) thank goodness we can't perceive radio waves because we would be bombarded right now yes (laughs) so i play with that those levels of perception and there's other levels of perception as well that I'm going to be continuously playing with in the story series because I want to play with 
like we were talking about earlier, different lenses of reality. She goes to different space stations and investigates things. And I want different space stations to have different cultures and different lenses and different value sets, essentially different priorities. Also, I've created a, a, a world that is a little different than our world. So I'm playing with exploring that. And to me, I think that's fascinating. So do you think that like, you're so drawn to those speculative genres of fantasy and sci-fi because they allow you to play so much more, even though you're writing about what it means to be human and those types of things, which you could do with, you know, quote, re realistic fiction, general fiction, but is what's the underlying draw to the speculative genres for you? Yeah, I think we're hitting on it. It's like ever since I was a very little, I believed in magic, even though the, the adults didn't. And um, I was like, how come? It almost, <laughs> then it made you question, you know, whether or not it's real. And yet I knew it was real. And so as I've grown older, I'm like, oh, there's all these things that we can't see, that we don't have measurement tools for right now, but we will. Just like we didn't have measurement tools before for the atom, but then, you know, it was there the whole time and we just couldn't see it, right? So I'm drawn to what is unseen because I think, and I've always had this certainty since I was a child, that there's always, there's way much more in our reality than we are aware of. And often children are aware of that. And I've carried that certainty with me this whole, you know, my whole life. And I've done, I've had experiences and I've done different, you know, I did a shamanic journey when I was 19. I've had really amazing meditations of all kinds. And it's like our notion of what makes us human generally is offered to us in culture in a very limited like bandwidth. But actually, if you like you've studied cultures around the world, I too, and I've lived in different cultures, our sense of what it means to be human is different in different cultures. So what if we put it all together? What if we were all brought up with this global sense of being human, meaning like we understood that the French maybe perceive reality than the Japanese, although those two cultures have a lot in common, you know, versus like native peoples in a particular tribe, you know, here in California versus, you know, people in the Kalahari versus people, you know, in India of a certain village, right? We're all people and we have a little bit different lens of reality and being, you know, attracted to fairy tales and folklore as a child um, and then soon science fiction and then the, the breadth of speculative fiction was like, oh, here, here the writer gets to play with what is possible. And I love that. So it's an exploration of the spirit. It's also an exploration of the body. It's adventure. I loved adventure. I always love adventure. I still love adventure. Yeah. <laughs> and write write yeah. adventure stories. So you mentioned that you're in, uh, you as a child were into the folklores and, and myths and things. And I can see how that would like go hand in hand with fantasy genre. What's the connection for you to sci-fi with that? Or do you ever pull f like fairy tale elements to your writing? Yeah, I was thinking about this before, before our conversation and I was noticing, well, there's a few different approaches I've taken with this. One is culture is rich uh, with fairy tales and folklore. So, children are read stories when they're when they're little and and so it's it's a matter of asking myself well what are the folk what's the folklore and the legends that my main characters in a story set 100 years in the future like what were the bedtime stories that her mother read to her right so right there we i start to touch imaginatively into what was the norm for her and her upbringing and other people's upbringing and other cultures and so there's that beautiful kind of piece that every culture has their folklore. And then 
I mean, that's the biggest way. But there was another there was another element that I was thinking about. <laughs> it's gone out of my head. Oh, I was just thinking about the contrast. Like fairy tales and folklore, they're often adventurous stories, stories about adventure and self-discovery. Um, and I would say that they have inspired me the most as, as a storyteller. Like I want to write stories about women going on adventures, specifically because I read tons of stories about boys going on adventures when I was a child and not, never about the girl. I mean, I mean, you had your standard sort of Red Riding Hood, um, which I think getting, is getting attacked, one. getting attacked in the forest. <laughs> Who wants that? And then you've got your Sleeping Beauty and your Snow White. But what about women? What about young girls, young women going off to kill the dragon? I mean, seriously, that's what motivated Henrietta the Dragon Slayer. And it, I was a child of the 70s. So I am a child of the 70s. And feminism was net, at that time compiling folklore where women and girls were centered. It was only in books that adults had access to. They weren't yet in the picture books. Um, now, now they are, and there's great ones. And um, and I still want more. <laughs> I have a project in that realm. But it's you know women going on adventures. That's what I wanted, and so that's what I write. So you could say in a big way, it inspires me every day as a writer, folklore. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm I'm super into the folklore folklore and fairy tale myths and fables and that sort of thing in finding a way to like meld it into my writing as well i'm also interested in doing like the, the like taking a feminist approach to it as well like i really want to look at villains in fairy tales and women and how they cross over and how maybe she isn't maybe as villainous as every, like every no no villain thinks they're a villain everybody thinks they're the hero of their own story so having a female character who is a villain but she thinks she's a hero absolutely that's, yeah. that's a very rich area to mine oh yeah, yeah. It's beautiful i want to transition a bit into some creativity coaching questions and things because that's what we're all about here so i wanted to ask you if you had any tips to give any new writers about if they're trying to approach the sci-fi or fantasy genres and they're kind of starting out, like what's some of the biggest mistakes or misunderstandings that you see from your clients and writers in that genre? Yeah, well, one of the things I see is sometimes people will try and do what's been done before. They might gravitate instantly to like the Tolkien-esque inspired fantasy story and think that's fantasy. I'm like, well, that's one kind of fantasy. There's many, many, many kinds and you can invent your own. <laughs> and he's not the be all end all. He's just, I mean, he maybe popularized it in, in some ways. So encouraging writers to find their own internal archetypes, essentially. And, and hey, if you want to play in the orcs and elves and magicians and wizards space, cool. But the, so the question would be, how do you make it your own? How do you insert your own personality, your own flavor, your own what's important to you? You know, what do you care about? Uh, I would say that's one thing. Another is I notice sometimes they won't go deep enough into their world, whether they're writing science fiction or fantasy, they will just draw it in broad sweeps and they won't get specific enough. So one of the most important questions to ask, and it's actually kind of hard, and sometimes writers can't get to it right away, I know I can't, which is, how did your world come to be? Mm -hmm. Whether you're setting it in the future at some point, or it's some fantastical land. And so getting clear about the evolution of your land so that because your main character, your point of view character walks around in this world, and to them it's a given. Oh yeah, we're this way because of that, and because of that, and because of that. You know, even if it's an imperfect understanding of how we came to be, everyone's got stories. We all have stories about how our 
maybe our town evolved or our country, our state, our city, the nation, even the world, right? We all have stories about how the geology came to be or how the politics came to be or how the culture came to be. Right. So the history. Yeah, the history. So knowing how your culture came to be and then understanding nitty gritty things. And there's a great quote I read somewhere recently. I think it was, oh, I'm going to misattribute this, misattribute this. It was one of our great science fiction fantasy writers, a woman. And she's like, study how people eat breakfast. What do they eat? How do they pay for it? And do they say a prayer before they eat of some kind, right? Like right there, if you can describe your characters having breakfast, um, you are gonna say a lot about the culture. So understanding the everyday, understanding how food is procured, understanding the rituals around something so mundane as eating, yeah. and understanding kind of like what are what's the norm and what's the abnormal, that right there will start to clue you in to your world. And then you start expanding that out. And these things will be the norm for your character. So that's the biggest thing is that writers tend to do these broad sweeps and they don't get down into the nitty gritty. So it's like the world building what with more specifics than yes. just yes. the world. Like it's like the world yeah. and then what's in the world and what's, what's in, in the that. world. Yeah. Yeah. And so speaking of world building, because that's such a big task when you're a writer, um, especially if you're doing a series, what's your process like for that wow <laughs> yeah there's so much that goes on to there mm -hmm. and um this kind of feeds back to what we were just talking about it which is one of the big problems that i notice writers have is they're they think they have to write an encyclopedic entry in their story or even for what their world is and and that's useful especially if there's a, an opinion or a, a a filter, a stance in that uh, Wikipedia or encyclopedic entry. But actually what really matters in your story is how your main character or your point of view characters, if you're writing from multiple points of view, how they perceive the world. That's what really matters. So that's where I start. I Well, I usually, in my planning, I usually start with situation, the character and the situation, the character and her immediate problem. And then I use the character as my lens to understand the world. I do not try to write encyclopedic entries. And now I'm working on book five of the Janie McAllister mystery series. And only now in the planning phase of this fifth book, did I even try to write encyclopedic entries where I wrote like a little philosophical thing, a little encyclopedic historical sweep, like in a hundred years, how are we going to frame what's been going on in this in space exploration because that's a big part of my story so that was fun but i couldn't have done it right away so i really scope way down into the character i'm like so when you want when i world build i start with what the character knows and then if the character doesn't know i move to another character who does know so i only i am super focused on what i need to write the scene I do not try and worry about things that are not relevant. And in first drafting, I even sometimes will put a bunch of things in brackets. So I know that this was my first guess at how this might play out. And then it's in revisions that I really take the time to deeply think about these details. That's a good tip because I'm sure a lot of people can relate. And I, I do this all the time where I get hung up on all the little world building details before I've even written the damn thing. And then I don't write it because I'm too hung up on it. So it's like, yeah. So, so kind of what you're saying is to just lay it out there from the character's understanding of whatever mm -hmm. they have in that moment and then mm -hmm. revise it with a more 
world building look. Yeah, and like even deepen it. Deepen it. But even then, you want to stay, at least I want to stay 100% in my character's perspective. I'm writing what's called deep point of view, close point of view. I don't think in this, because I'm writing investigative stories, I never pull back. I never have a narrative voice in, in the prose. In this book, I am going to start adding epigraphs. So I'm going to be putting quotes at the top of every chapter or some chapters. I haven't figured it out yet, which will be another perspective on things. And that is, it's like the narrator boom, has plopped them in there. And I did that heavily throughout my Henrietta the Dragon Slayer series. Every single chapter starts with an epigraph. So you, you start to learn the culture and the texture and you start to learn things that maybe Henrietta doesn't know, maybe some things she does know. And then we start, I start to tell the story from multiple points yeah. of view in books two oh, and three. that's cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Like a narrative through line, but like adjacent to what the character's actually yeah. doing. It enhances. Yeah. It's part of, it's just like in, in a given day, you might sing a lyric of a song or you might, you know, read a headline of a newspaper or get a text or see a tweet or a post, right? Like these are all, I forget the anthropological name, but they're like the artifacts of our daily lives. Right. Yeah. So I thread those throughout in my fantasy, and now I'm going to start to do that in my science fiction, because it'll add this three-dimensionality to the story that is just going to pop it out another layer. So do you have any tips for techniques on building emotional connections with your reader when you're working in those genres? Absolutely. And this goes across the board for all fiction, actually. Readers read to feel. And the most immediate way we can invite uh, our readers to do that is by being in the senses. And there are more than five senses. I have a whole class on this in my online school. I call it uh, 21 senses or something like that. Basically, most of our senses are actually senses that are sensing our organs and are the mechanics of our body. But of course, like taste, for example, we don't just taste, that's so generic. No, actually we have six kinds, there's six kinds of taste buds. So again, specifics and honing into the specifics of the sensory experience of your point of view character is going to viscerally, just automatically bring the reader into a feeling experience. And then you wanna add in also, what are they thinking deeply? Like uh, what I mean is directly. So this is all tips on deep point of view. And then something that beginner, beginning writers sometimes um, do is they lean heavily into the visual, but they forget you know, auditory and they forget smell and taste. They forget the feeling sense of the body. We really don't want to write, she was sad, right? It would be way more powerful if you wrote from the internal point of view would be something like, she slumped and sighed. I'm not telling you she's sad, but I'm, we've got that kind of down energy, right? And, and emotions are cultural is what they've been discovering. There is no, there are no universal emotions. We're always filtering our emotions through our culture. Very interesting. Is, <laughs> yes. So I invite people to research that and, and maybe argue with me if you want. but. Um, this is an area of research that we're coming to understand. So we are writing to a certain audience, all of us, and keying into that audience, which you are going, you as the author are going to share with. Use yourself as a barometer. Use, you are your first audience. So use your emotional filters. Use the way you feel in the body and your sensory perceptions. You are going to trigger that in other people. Right. I feel like if you're not feeling anything when you're writing it, then... That could be a red flag. <laughs> yes, know. a very big red flag. Yeah. Make yourself cry. Make yourself laugh. Make yourself sigh. This is when it's home for you in your body, then it will come home for the reader, hands down. It, I've seen it over and over again for myself and, and other writers. 
And what about with um, creating characters themselves and creating characters that readers are going to never forget or they're going to love to hate oh, yeah. or <laughs> fall in love with? <laughs> oh, yeah. yes, we all want to create those unforgettable, yeah. <laughs> compelling characters that you never want to leave. So there's a chapter in, in, we have a book called Plan Your Novel Like a Pro, and we have a wonderful chapter in there that we actually got permission from a screenplay writer to use his wonderful equation he calls it the emotional core, but at heart, we, we want to make our readers relatable and uh, empathetic. We want to have empathy for them. So the biggest thing you can do to help us connect to another character is to actually show weakness in them for us as the reader to have pity. So whether that's a challenge, a physical, emotional, mental challenge, whether it's you know dealing with some kind of hardship or, or loss, show us that the cracks in them. Some and that sort will... of vulnerability. Exactly. And that doesn't take away from their heroic qualities or their can-do abilities or anything. One of the challenges I have as a writer is, and in my first drafts, I have often made my heroines too strong and almost a little bit brash. And so the only thing I do to change them is I show their vulnerability. I don't sh change their intensity and, and their brashness. I just show also their vulnerability. And then you fall in love with them because you're like, oh, wow, she's a kick-ass heroine. Bit harsh sometimes, but oh, I get where she's coming from. I get it. So that's one of the biggest things that you can do as a writer is to show that vulnerability, even if it's just through internal thought and feeling. Like maybe they don't share show it to the other characters in the story. I was just going to say, what's your take on making characters likable? Because I personally, like, I don't really like that term because I don't think all characters should be or need to be likable because that's not how people are. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But, no. I, but if your protagonist is so unlikable to the point where the reader's like, oh, I can't even, I can't even stand to read this, then they might put mm -hmm. the book down. So like, there's mm -hmm. kind of a balance, I think, but yeah. Yeah. Well, this comes back to relatability, not the whole notion of the emotional core is help us relate to the character. We don't have to like them, but we have to relate to them. I don't, I don't necessarily like the villains I see in some of these nuanced stories or TV shows or movies, but I get it. I get where they're coming from. So make them three-dimensional, show them as relatable human beings. And that's one of another part of the emotional core, show them doing something we all do. We all put our shoes on. We all tie our shoes. We all, you know, get hungry whatever, or we all have sometimes certain OCD behaviors or certain, the opposite, right? We're all like, ah, kitchen's a mess, whatever. And then also show any, any part of way they care for others, even if it's the plant, even if, if the villain, <laughs> you know, doesn't seem to be a very nice person or even the protagonist, but, but they water their plant every day, right? So show them caring for something or someone that has no power or less power than them, uh, even if it's minimal. I had a villain in my um, series, my Henrietta series, where you learn that he loves birds and he cares for his birds and his aviary and he talks to them and he has relationships with them. Sure, he wants to dominate and take over the world, <laughs> but oh, look at him, he cares for his birds. Yeah. And you also learn the way in which he was, he felt victimized himself, right? So now I'm creating relatability. He's more three-dimensional, hopefully. And then you also wanna show their admiration we want them to have qualities that we admire even if we don't like them you know maybe they're they're amazing at math or they're, they're great with a knife <laughs> you know they're yeah. an artist 
with the knife, whatever. <laughs> uh, or they're, they always know what to say, even if it's a cutting remark, right? So these are, if you can really front load these in your story planning, I mean, this is what I do. I, I do a lot of story planning, front load these qualities, and then think about how do you show them up in the story? How do you, how do you make them happen in the story? Doing something, saying something, interacting with others. Now you've created a character who's intriguing and three-dimensional and maybe not likable, but we get where they're coming from and we can have empathy, not necessarily, right? We, we don't love them, but maybe we're intrigued by them. I personally struggle with writing characters. I think I'm just, I haven't had the experience yet to, well, the practice really is what it is. I haven't practiced enough. But speaking of experiences, like how much do your, does your life experiences factor into like the stories that you write or, and people too? Like, do you base characters off of people or do you just kind of think up your characters totally separately or how does that influence you? Yeah, well, I think it's all related. I mean, I think our lives are related to our art and our art feeds back into our life, right? So I think you and I had an earlier conversation about this, like there are sometimes I couldn't move forward on a story because I hadn't, I realized I hadn't had a self-realization about it and having a certain aha internally in my life through my own experience, then I was like, oh, okay, now I know how to solve that story problem. Yeah. And, and so there's a constant interplay. How can there not be? <laughs> We're humans. <laughs> We're humans who have lives. And then you learn how to put that into story form. It's deeply connected. What I do as a storyteller is deeply connected to what I care about as a human being, obviously. And I couldn't be writing today's stories if I hadn't had the previous life experience that I had had. Right. Sometimes we're just not ready to write a certain story. Yeah. Yeah. In many, many different ways. Yeah. yeah. So with art and creativity then how has that kind of influenced you as a person like your evolution as a person and vice versa so talking about creativity and self-development i mean again this is a loaded question sure um and then i'll circle back to the character where i get my characters from oh, sure. um yeah so i had to develop personally to have the confidence to be a fiction writer i had to develop i had to mature i had to have some life experience i had to have confidence i had to trust there's so many things I had to line up. I had to fail in other areas. I had to have kind of put myself in a corner before I really like dedicated myself to fiction. I, I, I was literally like faced with a choice. Either I give up on writing or I pursue fiction seriously. Like I was at a crossroads when I was 30, not getting into journalism school. I'd only applied to one school. They said, no. I was depressed for a few months. I finally read the essay and in the essay in black and white, I had written to them. The reason I want to be a journalist is so that I can get closer to people so that I can be a fiction writer. I mean, I literally wrote that in the darn essay. No wonder they didn't let me in. It was so it was like I was telling myself something that I didn't quite realize so blatantly until I finally read that essay again, even though I had written it right. And I realized, oh, I'm 30 years old. I either pursue fiction seriously and whatever that looks like i didn't know yet or i really like set this dream go i let the dream go so i decided to pursue fiction because i knew that's what i really wanted and had wanted for a long time <laughs> yeah you know well, so glad you it's did. like yeah i had to for me being a fiction writer has been a constant journey about facing and reconnecting with what i really want i mean i'm at, at that crossroads again where I'm noticing what I really, really want is more time with fiction, not less, more time. And that maybe I'm giving myself too many other things to do that aren't fiction. 
and, and noticing how I continually overload my plate, which is partly my psychology, but also it's like, well, since I have a tendency to overload my plate, why don't I be more firm about my writing space and really, it's almost like I have to give myself a lot of things to do so that I feel like I'm busy because that's part of what makes me happy. But if I make it all about the writing for at least half my day, well, what would that look like? And then, and then it, I take it more seriously and then I will spend more time on it. And I've only, I've seen over the years how dedicating myself again and again and again to fiction has brought me here <laughs> to, to what I do today, to the, the powerhouse that I am now as a fiction writer with my knowledge and experience. The ability to teach writers, having taught so many writers about how to write fiction, the ability to travel and teach overseas, the ability to bring storytelling tools into other domains like futurism and foresight. I've just gotten the message recently, like it's all about actually dedicating myself more to fiction. And it's very scary to, to admit that. And it's very scary to act upon that because our culture does not support that. Nobody is paying me to do that. Nobody is. I mean, I have a few readers who are like, when's the next book coming? And one reader in particular, very sweetly vocal about that, which just warms my heart. But nobody is really knocking on my door, sending me letters, sending me notes like, come on, where's the next book? Come on, I'll give you money. Where is it? You know, what else you got? What else you got? Or I've read all your books. What else you got? You're like, nobody's doing that to me. Yeah. Or like except that one fa fabulous fan. And maybe there's a bunch of others, but that I don't know about. So who is giving me permission to do this? I am. Only me. And that that's it's. That's intense, man. That's a challenge. This is where I have to really trust. I have to really, really, really trust because that's where my artist heart is taking me. And the more I've leaned into that over the years, and I've had many crossroads where I've had to I continually take the fork to fiction. You've got this choice or this choice. This one's fiction and this one's something else, you know, and I'm constantly choosing fiction. And it's so fascinating. It's led me here. And I'm super happy that it has. Because I constantly choose what is my heart? What does my heart want? And this is, this is where I am. And I know not everyone has that luxury, but I've even chosen it. Even when I had to have a day job and I had that day job, I just rearranged my attention so that I put dedicated time to fiction once a week. I started with once a week. And I would take the Saturday and I would go to the cafe and I'd have some lunch and I'd study my little book on how to write a book. It was weekend, the weekend novelist. That was my first teacher. And, you know, and I just did it, did the steps little by little by little by little. <laughs> Five years later, I finished that first novel. Dedication does pay off in the end, but giving yourself that permission is really important because I've also had that too, where I'm just like, I want to work on my book or whatever, but then I feel guilty that, oh, I should be really doing something that pays the bills. You know, I'm not going to feel like I'm, quote, wasting my time, but even though it's not a waste of time to do something that you love and want to do, but there's just that like messaging, I think, in our society or that it's like not worthy of it or it's more of a luxury. So you should be if you're going to do it, you should feel a little guilty when you're doing it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, we treat art and making art as a luxury when, in fact, everything in our culture is driven by story, everything and who we are also as well. And we're coming to see that, I think, as humanity, we're noticing like the stories we tell about who we are shape our choices and our actions and our reality. What would we do if we didn't have art or movies or pop culture or music or anything? I, I honestly don't know. And I don't know if humanity would would know. I mean, there's been great dystopian stories about that. And you could even look at dictatorial societies, you know, societies with dictatorships where art is controlled. You can see what happens in people's imaginations and sense of self. I mean, so we actually do know. Yeah. And it doesn't look 
nice without it. Right, we can see how people's spirits are deflated and how it's like lots of these cultures are sort of monoculture, like it's only one way. Well, like, well, what if you're not like that? Then what? You know, you become deeply oppressed. I, I do want to ask you a bit about editing. Before I do, let's circle back to that question that I totally didn't let you fully answer about the characters sure, sure. and where you get inspiration from. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I definitely get inspiration from the people that I know, family, friends. Watch out, everyone. Uh, you're in a book. <laughs> and um, actually, it was my sister who pointed out to me in my Henrietta the Dragon Slayer series, because in the first book, there's four of them, Henrietta and three others. And then by the fifth book, there's a fifth. And um, I was brought up with me and three other siblings. And I do also have a fifth sibling. And so he 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 shows up as a her in, in the fifth. Well, he doesn't really, it was just natural. But by the end, there's five of them all together, five friends. And she was the one to say to me, oh, these are like us. And I, and I didn't even see it. You know, I didn't even see it. But I know that I'm drawing inspiration from people I meet, people I know. A friend of mine just told me an amazing story about her life the other day. And I was like, wow. I mean, she's completely different than me. And it, to hear her story, I was so inspired. I'm like, ooh, I could use that somehow. Or, I, you know, I've met people from different cultures and different parts of the world. And I just, they inspire me. Everyone inspires me. People I've met, characters, and yeah, everyone. Do you put your, do you inject yourself into your characters all, often or at all? Because I find it hard personally to, I think this is why I still struggle with writing characters, is like writing people outside of myself. Like I find it so hard to know what other people are thinking. So then how could I do that on the page? So then I end up making characters that are kind of just me. But um, again, I think I just need to practice more too. But yeah, what mm -hmm. what do you do with in, in terms of putting yourself yeah. into characters? I think that's natural. I think we automatically put ourselves into characters. I would say one of my very first stories that I never was able to finish, I couldn't grok the main character but i was able to understand a made-up secondary character and i know in hindsight it's because the main character is a historical figure and i i can't, i don't like sticking to the facts <laughs> i don't like sticking to history so it was easier to step into a made-up character and i i think personally i have sort of the opposite issue in that it's i sense very naturally into what other people think and feel not that i'm right but i have sort of this ability i'm an empath essentially and i can i seem to step into other people's shoes very easily which can make it difficult to figure out what i think and feel personally so i but then i've also like i took an acting class that included improv and that was actually very very helpful to learn how to really step into other people's shoes from a and like what would they say and what would they do and what are they feeling so i highly recommend acting classes for any writer who's having the struggle that you're having and learning to recognize someone else's map and and ha like nlp like basically the words someone uses might be very different than the words i use or you use right and how they think of breakfast might be very different than how you think of breakfast right so if you start to recognize pay attention to the specifics of how people speak and how they move you might start to understand how they might be thinking. Right. Finding those lenses and looking through them. Yeah. And, and talking to people and, and paying attention and asking maybe deeper questions like, what made you decide to do that? Like trying to get to people's motivations. And I noticed that it, it, we're all very much wired to be in our own experience. I mean, obviously. I notice when I'm looking, working with writers, I will ask them, tell me more about why you have the character saying this or doing that. 
and I get them to tell me and I learn and I'm like, great, that's great. Now add that in because that's that will explain to me now their motivation for that action. So it could be that it's just another layer for you to look at, like what motivates people to take certain action or to say certain things. It's funny that you mentioned the improv acting thing, because that's actually something I really want to try. I, I'm I'm like terrified of doing that. But <laughs> um, so that's why I haven't done it. But it's like deeply in me that I'm like, I really think I should do it. I feel like it would really help. Yeah. But it's going to be scary, but I want yeah. to, yeah, I think in terms of, yeah, writing other people, mm -hmm. trying to come up on your feet really quickly with responses and answers in the moment and, and, and then, but then also riffing off of other people, you kind of have to look at what, like, where are they coming, where are they going with this, um, yes and exercise in the improv class? So it's, yeah, I think I should, I need to do that. I, yeah, I highly recommend it. And you know what? There's a great book that came out maybe a year or two ago that is written by an improv expert, an improv artist for writers. She's also a writer and, and I will send that to you because I can't remember the title off the top of my head. She's a real sweetheart. I think she even wrote, uh, had to write an article for my blog for writers, Writers Fun Zone. And, and that could be a great place to start to play on the page with improv tools because that might be a more safe space. And then I do highly recommend, you know, when you feel ready, to find a teacher who really gets you. Like I actually interviewed the teacher before taking the class. I'm like, hey, I don't wanna be a professional actor. I'm a writer and I'm taking this to help me be more confident in my writing. And she's like, oh yeah, my class is for non-actors too. That's what I needed. I, I needed someone who could hold that space. You know, I didn't wanna be treated like a lot of um, people in the acting industry, they're super critical. And I'm like, I don't need that. <laughs> I, you know, that's not what I'm here for. And so I interviewed, you know, her, and I would have inter inter interviewed teachers until I found someone. And luckily the first person I chatted with, she, she totally had that wonderful stance of, you know, this is a class for actors and non-actors. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I, that's a really good point to find the, something for non-actors or at least where they're allowed to be there as well. So let's talk a little about editing. You've mentioned that editing isn't a one size fits all type of thing. So how, how what, what do you mean by that? And what are some ways to find editing that works for you? Like the right Yeah. Way? Oh, I love this question because this is really my stance when I teach editing. And we start off by doing basically a kind of assessment to try and understand if you understand how you like to process your content, your story, if you start to understand yourself, then you can devise a process that will work for you. And so the first thing I'm always very curious about is, are people process oriented? Do they really want a step-by-step -step process or are they more like, just give me my menu of options and I'll do whatever I feel like. I want to, I want to know my buffet, right? The buffet of options uh, to edit my book. And then depending on my feelings per day, I will choose the salad or the pasta or whatever, right? Like. So people generally are either process oriented, one, two, three, A, B, C, or they're like buffet me, you know, I want to see the whole menu before I choose. So that's a big distinction right away to notice how you are wired. Um, some writers, they write without planning. They just follow their gut. They listen to their characters. The characters speak to them super loudly and they're happy with that process. So editing for them might look differently than if you're someone who's super process oriented and has done a ton of planning ahead of time. And then you probably want a very process oriented editing um, one, two, three. 
So for, for kicks, what are you? Me, I would be more of the process. Type. Yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. figured. So P planning, planning it out. It out. Yeah. yeah. So if you've taken the time to plan your story and then you write your story, now you probably want a plan for editing. And, and for those, so for people like you, I'm going to give you some big steps. And then for people who are listening, who are more in the buffet style of writing and very intuitive, listen to all these options and then pick what works for you, given your experience, you know, your mood for the day. So usually the very first thing I recommend, and not everybody needs to do this, but is, is you need to set aside your story um, so that it can cool off <laughs> so that you can come to it with fresh eyes so that you can come to it with curiosity and like, oh, what did I create here? Hmm, interesting. Like have a little bit of neutrality to it. And sometimes that means letting your story sit for a week, a month, a year, five years. It, there's no <laughs> there's no rule on this, but you'll know, right? There's sometimes when the soup is just too hot to eat, right? We gotta let it cool, right? There's that sweet spot. So pay attention to your own gut and your own intuition about that because it got you this far. And then the next thing that I usually do is I want to know what I created. Like, oh my God, what was this? And as you can tell, I am this kind of process person. I want to know what did I create? So I read the whole book through. I usually like send it to my Kindle. You can send a Word doc to the Kindle usually or your, your iPhone, your smartphone or a tablet. And I like to read the story as a reader as best I can. Uh, I might take notes. I usually don't note right inside the document. That's why I don't recommend you read it like in a Word program. Read it on a device that you might read a book on, you know, a tablet or a phone, or usually what people are doing. And make notes if you want. Posties if you like them, notebook if you want, however it works for you. Audio notes, you know, I, I'm big on audio notes myself. And then as you read, just feel, feel it as a reader, you know, notice where you feel it, notice where it might be off, take notes, like I said, if you want or not. Then once you finish the story as a reader, actually step back like another step and now step into your evaluator mode like well like an editor editor i would when i'm doing this for someone else i'm like okay so what was your intention you know what are you trying to do and did you get there and i start to sort of do an assessment here's where you hit the mark really really well here's where it didn't come through and if you've never edited before then this might feel like a ton of question marks to you <laughs> where you're like, but I don't know, but I don't know. But actually as a reader, you know, you probably, and maybe for you, it's like, oh, this was really great scene. I was so involved, but so-and-so wouldn't say that, or so-and-so wouldn't sound like that. Or the setting wasn't, I didn't, the setting wasn't um, fleshed out or the world felt sketched versus lived in, right? Like you as a reader will probably already know what is working what isn't working and so start going through it be be process oriented look at story beginning middle and end look at character is the character goal clear is the character motivation clear are the conflicts clear and are they truly big conflicts conflicts that are really challenging to your character is the resolution clear or is it missing could the resolution be recast or made more satisfying? So those are two lenses right there. And then we have setting, does it come alive? Is it fully sensory? 
world building? Is it rich? Is it multidimensional? Are there areas where you could insert way more texture about the world in, its, in the past? So those are kind of the macro things, right? And notice, I didn't talk anything about punctuation and grammar yet. Save that for the very end, unless you're a little bit OCD and they get in the way. Well, then I, what I did with my science fiction mystery series, I didn't have the bandwidth to do some of this deeper dive right away in my editing process because my dad was sick and dying. And so all I had bandwidth for was correcting typos and word, very light word choice things and changing look to peer and jump to, you know, leap or whatever, you know, like just spicing it up a little bit. Uh, making sure as best I could my punctuation was decent, but that I I I have a proof <laughs> I have a proofreader for my novels. Yeah, I'm not great on that. But at that time, it was all about I put that first because that was like my brain could only handle the simple things. So it it doesn't matter if you need to go through your book and fix all your typos as your first edit pass. Then then do that if that helps you. Then. You're like, okay, I got to, I got to straighten my office so that I could get to work. You know, it's kind of what I do. I got to straighten my desk before I work, right? Like, eh, just put away the dishes. Okay, now I can work. It's like housekeeping. So if you need to do that level of, of corrections on your document before you look at the story level, character level setting and um, world building, then that's, that's cool too. And then also something I leave for later is pacing and then line editing once you understand what pacing you want, then you can start to really make choices at the word and sentence level, because those things are going to completely influence your pacing. But there's also a higher level of pacing, which is, is this scene necessary or is this slowing down the action or, you know, or do I need to show more here and slow things down more because this is really important. So there's a few levels of pacing analysis I do. And then those, those world building details I was telling you about, I'm usually taking care of those toward the end because I've taken care of all the important details. Now I want to make sure I want to add texture. Now I really want to make sure that 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 you feel like you're in a lived in experience, not just some set design in a theater. Like I don't want the reader to be aware of themselves reading. So how can I create an immersive experience for them? And that's like enhancing the feelings and the sensory details. Even when you have a character, characters in conversation with each other, you can embed that with setting and world building. So all of a sudden, instead of just talking heads, now we're in a, we're in a living room where the students are come are holograms, and you see their backgrounds, and you see your own setting, and you hear things, and you you know there's a lot I can do. I'm, I'm just first drafting that right now, but <laughs> I'm already adding in things to start to add three dimensionality, even in my first draft. Yeah. So there's like, you go through it and there's these different layers that you look at each time you yeah. go through it. So that's the process version. So then the buffet style. So buffet style will be, so here's all your options. We just laid them out. What do you feel like doing today? So it's like a day by day by day process. Yep. You just kind yeah. of in the, what you're feeling that yeah. day is what, what you're going to work on. on. Yeah. And honestly, most of the writers, the writers I work with are a lot, a lot of them are process oriented. Um, the writers I meet who are completely like that whole buffet style, like they have internalized all these things that I'm talking about. And often where I support them is more giving them feedback on what's working, what's not. Like they often will come to me a little bit later stage with their manuscript and I'll actually be part of their editing process and I can help them look at things like pacing or, you know, is the opening a strong enough hook or like 
you didn't start the story in the right place or you didn't end in the right place, you know, things that are sometimes really hard to tell when you're working in that kind of style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Beth, fortunately, I'm going to have to wind things down as it has already been an hour, <laughs> but <laughs> I know it's, it's crazy, but I've had so much fun talking with you and uh, I feel like we could have just kept going <laughs> probably for a long time. But before you go, can you please tell us where um, where our listeners can find you online and if they want to reach out or learn more or if there's anything you want to promote that's coming up? Absolutely. Well, um, as you said earlier, I have this podcast called How to Write the Future for science fiction and fantasy writers who want to write positive, optimistic futures, because when we vision what is possible, we help make it so. And through this podcast, I'm now just recently launched the ability for people to get a 30 minute story success clinic interview with me that will be part of the podcast. So we could talk about world building, we can talk about whatever issues are coming up for them and gives them an opportunity to get visibility for their books. So that is the current invitation that I have for people. And that's at howtowritethefuture.com. And we'll direct you right to this interview offer. Um, other than that, people can connect with me primarily on Twitter and LinkedIn at Beth Barani. Uh, and I invite people to email me if they have questions, beth at bethbarani.com. Uh, yeah, those are primary ways that you'll start to discover all about my stuff. <laughs> Awesome. Okay, I will be sure to put all those links in the show notes. Last question for you before you go. Uh, I want to, my aim is to ask all my guests this. What advice would you give our listeners for living a wild, creative life? I so love this question. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Really, it's lean into your art, whatever that is. You know, just really lean into it and exercise it. Do it whatever that means with a sketchbook or the journaling or wherever level you're at, even if it's not yet that advanced, just do it, make time for it. So that's number one. Number two is really pay attention to the marketplace, no matter where you are in, in it. Just notice if you want to be in the marketplace and notice what's really going on there, which is an exchange and start to figure, feel it out for yourself. And number three, community. I'm really a big proponent for being a part of an artist community. Whatever your domain is, go there. Be with people, learn from your peers, learn from people further along than you, help people who are not as far along as you. There's such a great dynamic there. And part of that is letting yourself get feedback so that you can improve. That's a huge part of excelling as an artist. And then lastly, mindset. What are the mindset that you have that are helping you? What are, what's the mindset that you might be having, you know, different ideas and beliefs that might be hindering you and you can change those. You can learn how to have the internal stance that will support the life that you want to live as an artist. I love all of those steps. Very relatable and very <laughs> significant. So thank you again so much, Beth, for joining us. It was lovely to have oh, you. Thank you so much, Emma. I love the work you're doing. Thank you very much for doing it. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thank you again to Beth Barani for sharing all of her awesome insight about fiction writing. And thank you to you, listener, for tuning in. If you're enjoying the podcast overall, please do rate and review. Don't forget to subscribe, follow, share, all the things to help get it out there. I really do appreciate it. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas for future episodes, or if you want to be a guest on the podcast, please email me at emmakivetna at gmail.com. 
Otherwise, until we meet again, stay wild, stay creative. Stay creative.